We're living in a time that's full of uncertainty. But what decisions can we make to create more joy, connection, and solidarity at work? It's a question that we're all facing right now. Welcome to Joy at Work. I'm your host, Alex Liu, Managing Partner and Chairman at Kearney. Joy. Really? In these challenging times, joy can feel just like a distant memory. But that's why now, more than ever, we need to lean into conversations about how to cultivate more joy at work, wherever and whenever work may be. Over the past few months, I've talked to leaders who are creating solidarity, connection, and community in their teams. They're focused on making sure people feel safe, seen, supported, and inspired. And while only a few of those conversations have aired publicly on this podcast, I've had hundreds of similar conversations and dialogues behind the scenes. There's a larger societal movement happening towards higher purpose, equality, equity, and justice in our no-normal world. As I mentioned in a prior podcast, the Chinese lunar calendar is divided into 60-year cycles, and 2020 marks the beginning of a new moment in history, a new stage in that cycle. It won't be easy, but we all have the opportunity to build a better next 60 years. Keep listening for my favorite moments from this season of the Joy at Work podcast. These are the insights that continue to inspire me as I think about how to build a better next 60 years. At Kearney, in our work for clients, with each other, in our communities, and even in my own personal journey. I hope you'll feel inspired too. The first conversation we're going to revisit is my talk with Alicia Tillman, who is global CMO of SAP. Alicia's leadership style has always been one that's drawn on empathy and compassion, and she certainly needed to draw on that during this year. I asked her how the power of empathy will be ever critical going forward. Empathy has always been something that I have practiced considerably in my leadership style, but I think empathy has become even more important. And the practice of, of not only understanding and listening to what's affecting your employees, but also how you can help. And I do think that we live in a world where more action is needed to help solve a lot of the challenges that in some cases have been around for a long time. And I do think calling on companies, calling on business leaders to really use their resources and their scale to support a lot of the change that needs to happen in the world. I do think that that's something that has uh, been a strong action that we've seen people respond with. But I think it's also going to continue post-pandemic as well, because, you know, if we think of brands today and the greatest value that they can provide at a consumer level, it is in large part not just about the quality of the products you deliver or the experience that you deliver, but it's also about how much change or good you use your brand for because consumers want to be part of a community. They're buying into a community where there's shared values and there is a very strong purpose to truly using your brand to help the world become a better place. So I think that that is going to be an imperative 
for leaders and for businesses to continue to think about the actions they can take to help support. And then I think, you know, at a leadership level, as I've talked about empathy, I think we need to continue in businesses to create safe spaces for employees to talk about things that are on their minds and, you know, how their business can be a place of hope and a place of change so that they can feel as if, you know, as an employee, they're investing their professional life in a place that's going to be best aligned to their values and let lets them bring their their full sense of self to the business every single day. And so I think that's going to be a, a continued requirement of companies. And it's going to be a continued requirement of leaders to ensure that they are creating those safe spaces to really promote the diversity and the inclusion that's going to be needed to help deliver on really what it is our customers are going to be asking of us. There's a a quote that I heard from someone, I can't remember where, but I've heard it several times now, which is, it's okay to not be okay. And I know that mental health, coping and caring are all important. It links to your empathy umbrella. What are you doing as a firm to help promote that and make that more accessible? One of the things that we have taken on board as a company is to put direct visibility and awareness around resources. And in fact, we promoted this on a lot of our social channels in the past week as we look to to raise awareness on, you know, Mental Health Day and the resources that we offer and where to find them and how to help, whether it be live people that you can talk with or resources that you can use to read, to become educated, to help you understand where you can go to seek advice and help and counsel. And I wanted to do this because, you know, oftentimes there was, you know, a a saying that exists that says, you know, you have to have a separation between your personal life and your professional one. And any issues you may have going in your personal life, you have to check them you know, and leave them at the front door when you're going into work each day. And you need it to sort of bring a different person into your professional life as if some of the challenges you may be dealing with at home didn't exist. And it's just not humanly possible to do that. We all know that. And we need to be able to create these safe spaces in the environments in which we work for leaders to allow employees to talk about things that are on their minds or things that they may need help with, that they're struggling with at home that are having an impact on their performance in the office. We have to be able to say that it's okay for you to have a discussion like that with your leader and that your leader should not judge you for that, but should more help extend an empathetic manner in listening to that by helping to direct that person to resources or to create some sort of a flexible schedule if necessary to allow them to manage that appropriately and to help them through that. Could working from home create new opportunities for joy? In my conversation with Dan Cable, professor of organizational behavior at London Business School, we discussed what he calls our seeking system. The seeking system is the part of our brain that powers our curiosity. There are three triggers to this seeking system, and if you activate one of these three triggers, your brain receives dopamine. Now, according to Dan, our new reality of working from home or living at work, might actually help us activate these triggers for ourselves and for those we lead. 
this is a place I have a lot of optimism, Alex. This is one of those places where I'm not saying that we got it perfectly yet, but I am saying that this experiment that we're in right now has forced all three of those triggers to be switched on. Let's just go through those triggers just so everybody can kind of listen to them. The first one is experiment and explore your work so that you don't just do it the way it's always been done, but you think about new ways to do old things. And it doesn't mean it always works, but it means you try it out. And I think a lot of us are being forced to try it out in new ways right now. Like for me right now, literally teaching through Zoom, it really is challenging. It's very interesting. I'm very curious how to get better. The first two or three I did, it didn't go that well. I had to learn and adapt to the feedback. So, you know, that's number one. That's the first trigger that I think like we're all being pushed a bit on. The second one is I've already mentioned, which is like using your strengths to personalize the work. And I think that now more than ever, leaders need that. In the past, they used to th say they needed it. They, they sort of recognized they needed it, but they didn't always allow it, so to speak. And I think now what leaders need more than ever is for people to find a way to do their work and to accomplish the results of the work, but use their best skills and use their unique perspectives. I think now more than ever, that's something that leaders are needing and not just saying nice to have. And then the third one, which I've also hinted at, is this personalizing purpose. And it's this idea of helping people find a story or a narrative about who's affected by what I do. And that's not the leader's narrative. That's not like Merck saying, you know, we build better, stronger lives. That is the Merck person in accounting saying that when I put these budgets together better, the decision makers can make better decisions about saving lives. And so the point being helping people figure out at their own level of work who gets impacted by it. So those are the three triggers. And like, again, I'm not saying that we've got this perfect. What I am saying is it's a time of experimentation where leaders and workers have to kind of try some of this stuff out. Winston Churchill once famously said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And the reality is that for every organization, how you respond and react to the ongoing crises will chart your course for many years to come. Catherine Minshew, co-founder and CEO of job development platform, The Muse, joined me to break down what hiring is going to look like in the future. According to Catherine, the actions and values that you demonstrate right now are critical to ensuring you attract the best talent going forward. In other words, we need to all meet this moment. COVID is accelerating a number of really interesting trends that were in play before the pandemic, but that have really come to the forefront. One is this idea of a changing relationship between employees and employers. And uh, a shorthand that we use at the Muse often is relationships over transactions. But more broadly, it means that the old model of labor in exchange for a paycheck, it's no longer serving most people. And instead, individuals are looking for their employers to provide much more. They're looking for learning and growth, flexibility, a broader sense of meaning, much more human workplaces. There's also this massive trend towards authenticity that I think is so interesting. And, you know, a, a perfect example is when everything shifted to not just remote, but really work from home during a global crisis, uh, you know, a global pandemic, it was impossible to separate our personal and professional selves in the way that office workers might have historically, right? You couldn't sit at your dining room table and do a Zoom with your boss without the possibility of a pet, 
a child, a parent, a roommate coming into the screen or a disruption coming in. And we all just had to learn to live with it. But I think in a way it's made us more human and it's really accelerated this trend towards authenticity in the workplace. And so there's a few interesting implications of that. One is the importance of reputation. We've been talking for many years about how a company's reputation as an employer has been affecting and, and will continue to affect the access to talent they have, both who they can hire and who they can retain. But that trend is massively accelerating. Our data shows that 85 to 90% of job seekers are considering a company's reputation as one of their top factors in deciding where to work. And reputation, by the way, it's not just what a company wants to tell you about itself. It's also made up of the sum total of employee experiences, how those are communicated, what your employees say about you on social to other individuals. And so candidates are really looking to see how organizations are behaving through this crisis, how are they treating their employees. There's a really interesting trend towards candidates and employees looking for organizations that share their values. And I think that's been, again, heightened by COVID because there's a lot more data. How did your company treat its people when the stuff hit the fan? I'm not sure if I'm allowed to curse on this, but what happened when things got tough? If you did layoffs, and many, many businesses did, how did you treat the people who left? How did you treat the people who stayed? Employees are building these really interesting whisper networks where they're sharing a lot of this information about how employers are showing up during the hard times. And candidates have been building much more of, of a network, of a process around researching employers, considering reputation, looking for places that treat their people well. Um, and that's not going to change. And actually, after the events of the summer and after the broad national conversation on racial justice in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, a lot of candidates, especially millennial and Gen Z candidates, are also asking how the company is doing on measures of racial justice and diversity and inclusion. And those are tough questions for some employers to answer right now. But again, the, the questions aren't going away. And I think that the trend towards candidates, particularly the best candidates, increasingly asking for answers is not changing. Younger talent is becoming bolder in asking companies to respond to social issues, asking how companies are doing. And again, there will always be people who are willing to ignore some of these other factors and just take the job. But I think what we're seeing from a lot of employers is that if they want to consistently be able to attract the best people, they have to be thoughtful about what those people want and what sorts of policies, behavior, etc., is going to, you know, to really attract and retain them. As Catherine noted, 2020 has been about so much more than the coronavirus pandemic. We are also in the midst of a racial pandemic, and the ongoing conversations around social justice have been powerful, enlightening, and long overdue. When I talked to Stephen Tang, president and CEO of Orisure Technologies, he pointed out that for many people, the conversations around racism come from their very own lived experiences as a minority. Stephen shared his experiences growing up as one of the few Asians in his hometown of Wilmington, Delaware, and he discussed the necessity for leaders of color to share their own personal experiences, particularly in this moment. Well, certainly I, I observed the immigrant's journey from my parents coming to this country and, and certainly deeply identify with how immigrants think about things and how innovation is spawned. I think they're very similar pathways in that you really don't know the environment you're in and you're trying to make the best of it and build for not only your own well-being, but generations to come. I think, though, that the most uncomfortable part of looking at diversity 
equity and inclusion was examining my own unconscious bias. And to do so, I really had to explore uh, something which I think you would relate to personally is the myth of the model uh, minority which I think is the way a lot of folks of Asian descent uh, who come from immigrant families uh, grow up, which is somehow with the sense that you're different than the other minorities and that because you've invested in education and hard work, it makes you a better minority. And that's a painful truth to deal with because uh, in doing so, it, it kind of reveals that you were part of both privilege and discrimination in your own right. Because if you're a better minority, that means there have to be less better minorities. And that's a very uncomfortable moment it certainly was for me uh, to come to grips with. And then I made the choice to share that with my employees as a way of expressing the fact that I understand that unconscious bias is a real thing. And I grew up with this. I certainly love my parents and love the life that they gave me, but this will not stand. This will not stand for me and it won't stand for our company. So that was a, that was a moment of reckoning. I mean, it obviously speaks to a larger bias in society about people that are in dominant roles and non-dominant and us as immigrants being non-dominant, right? Trying to fit in, play the game, whatever it's education or whatever. Did you actually feel the opposite, which is even, you know, outright hostility in your career and your personal life or even in your family's life coming through the system? Well, I, I grew up in uh, Wilmington, Delaware in, in the 1960s. There were very few Asian kids. There were very few Asian families. Those that were around sort of bandied together uh, to support each other. But I think that my encounters were sort of self-inflicted in that I wanted to be a baseball player. I wanted to be good at baseball. And most of the time, I was the only Asian playing baseball, except for my, my younger brother. And uh, it was eye-opening. I, I think, you know, I had heard that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in, in uh, 1947. But fortunately, the, the people I played baseball with uh, didn't seem to fully appreciate that. And so, you know, we all have to be pioneers in our own environment. And that was somewhat painful. I mean, I heard things from other players and in some cases, their families that uh, to this day, you know, shock me. And so I can certainly relate to the hostility that minority groups feel today, and particularly within the Black Lives Matter movement. So that is, uh, I think, vital to come to grips with as I think about ways that Orish or Technologies is going to behave uh, differently towards inclusion, uh, diversity, and, and equity. I was listening to you describe the sports story, and, and I sympathized as well. I was always the only Asian on the XYZ, you know, baseball, rugby team. And um, at the same time, I, I saw the flip side, which is sports. If you were allowed to play on the team, and if the parents allowed you to play on the team, you learn rapport, team building, skills, complementarity, common purpose. So once I got on it, I was like, God, I was addicted to sports. But you're right. It wasn't easy sometimes, right? You know, why? Why, why is my son not or daughter not playing, you know, first base instead of this fellow who's not even one of us? I mean, those are things that hurt. Yeah, that, that's right. And they're hard to relate to unless you've gone through them. And that's why I think when people of color ascend to leadership positions, CEO roles, it's very important that we share those experiences and don't deny them because they're, they're part of our own personal growth and they'll help other people as well. Knowing the challenges that all of us are facing right now, we knew we could not have a second season of Joy at Work without bringing back our most popular guest from season one, Callie Field, the Executive Vice President of Customer Care at T-Mobile. Now, 2020 was always going to be a challenging year for Callie as she was helping to lead a merger between T-Mobile and Sprint. But in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, Callie took on one of her most difficult challenges yet, 
As part of her discussion, she talked about the steps that T-Mobile took to address racial inequities and some of the personal steps that she had to take herself. The first thing that I had to do was listen to underrepresented groups, people of color, and specifically black employees talk about their experience at our company and create a safe environment where they could tell me about racist experiences they had at T-Mobile, which I was so blind to, ignorant of. And I mean, it's a part of privilege to not have to worry or experience that low-level abuse. And that was a big step for our Black employees to be like, okay, we can talk to her about this and we're not going to get fired or there's not going to be repercussions. So we had some work to do to create trust with our Black employees where they had safe spaces to share their experiences if they wanted to. There is a, I think, probably natural tendency to feel shame. And then in feeling that shame, want to brush it off or excuse it or get to fixing it. And I think I had to learn to just sit with it and realize that if I wanted to be the type of authentic, empathetic leader who created opportunities for people without access to resources to give them access to resources, I had to sit with this. And then I think the next phase was get to studying, do my homework, that asking my black employees to fix this for me was not only unfair, but it's not a good strategy. And so we did a lot of things as a company together. We invited people like Jennifer Eberhardt, who wrote the book um, Biased, to come and talk about bias. We also invited Dr. Ibram Kendi, who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist and is doing a lot of really cool work in his role as an academic and also as an author to talk about and define what is racist behavior and how do you dismantle it and give people in corporations or in families a language for identifying what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And that's part of the issue is that corporations that don't talk about racism and don't listen to employees don't have a way to identify what kind of policies might have racist effects or why they have such disparity in their leadership levels where they don't look diverse at all, including T-Mobile. And there was a lot of truth telling that had to occur with us being accountable for the whiteness of our team and and also engage with our employees on what we were going to do about that. We also, as a part of the new T-Mobile, signed a memorandum of understanding with six civil rights organizations and built an external diversity and inclusion council for people who work in this world of justice and, you know, whether it's working for um, the census or working in voter registration, just people who are better at it than we are. Like we are really good at building towers and selling cell phones. We need help and we need advice and counsel on how to break down injustices internally and then what our obligations are to our customers and to the economy externally. We signed this memorandum of understanding with 54 commitments across five different categories, corporate governance, recruitment and retention, procurement and entrepreneurship, providing wireless services for low income areas, and then philanthropy and community investment. And so we asked them to help us build a comprehensive strategy that reflected our values. And it's hard work. Like we are not all where we want to be, but we've got a good strategy and plan in place to get there. And we've been really open with our employees 
and our customers about what those commitments are and how we're tracking against success in fulfilling those things. I don't mean to say that we've got it buttoned up and we're we're good to go. We've checked a box. Like no, in no way are we there. But it's certainly been a, an extremely important conversation we've had, an important investment in personal development and learning for me. I mean, my social media feeds look very different today than they did six months ago. Who I want to hear from and what kind of voices I want to learn from have changed. And I think that's a good thing. My friend Crystal Ashby has been a warrior on the topic of racial justice for her entire career. Crystal is the president and CEO of the Executive Leadership Council, the ELC, which is the preeminent organization for the most senior black executives. At the ELC, she leads the organization's efforts to close the long-standing race gap in the corporate world. We had a powerful discussion about her experiences as a black woman in the corporate world and the responsibility that we all have to conquer racial injustice. But despite this challenging year, Crystal is actually incredibly hopeful for our future. And I couldn't think of more powerful words to close out season two of Joy at Work. One of the things you hear a lot of people saying right now, and I think this goes to the, oh, I wish things could return to normal. And I don't hold that position. In some respects, I think some of the things we're going through in the world right now is because we needed to pause and we needed to rethink and reevaluate. And we should not come out the same as we went into this. We should learn the lessons. We should have spent the time really digging deep and saying, how do we make this place a better place for everyone? Across from zero to however old you are, whatever your life experience is, how do we make this better? And I believe that in the current environment, people are really asking themselves that question. People are really pausing. I believe that people want better and, and people may struggle with what is better or how to get there. But I think the commitment to making sure we come out of 2020 or however long the tail is on this particular set of issues, stronger, wiser more in touch with humanity, more in touch with each other, more connected to each other. Because if you think about what's the one thing everybody I think is missing, I don't even care if you're a hermit. People are missing connectivity. People are missing the ability to be in the same space with each other, to hug each other, to touch each other, to talk to each other, to be live. What do we all have to do to make that change happen? Would I say I hope the conversation of race ends and we never have to have it again? No. And the reason I say that is because I believe if it ends, will become complacent and we will have forgotten and we won't tell the history so it doesn't happen again. There's an adage that the, the reason history repeats itself is because you didn't learn the lessons you were supposed to learn. I believe the way we are all approaching this is because we want to learn the lessons because we don't want to be here again. So it would be great not to have the need for the conversation, but to have the conversation in such a way that it becomes a real living part of the fabric. It becomes a sustainable piece of the history so that people understand it. I think these steps towards accountability, transparency, action that we're seeing, the comfort levels that people are starting to have about really saying how they really feel about these things, the hard conversations, things not being swept under the rug, it will be hard to turn that water faucet off. And, you know, I'm not saying it's not done respectfully. I'm not bullying anybody into to stepping forward and saying we're going to be better as a people. But I think that we won't have to fight to have the conversations. We won't be as afraid to have them. Things will get resolved more quickly because they'll come to the forefront faster. You know, when I think about 
the people I admire as we're on this journey. And I've talked about some of the executives I've had the pleasure of talking to recently, but I admire my fellow black executives who have been dealing with this every day, their entire careers. And they've still gone to work every day and they've still been excellent and they've still done the jobs that they were hired to do. And they've still fought for the organizations that they believe in, regardless of what they brought from home that day. And those are sort of the heroes in all of this. This all happened this summer, but we are still staying the course and we still believe in the commitments that we've made. And that's why I think I have joy, because a word that gets used a lot right now is resilience. I think we are a resilient people. But I live for the day when that's not a term that's being used to describe our ability to bounce back from anything. This time continues to seem different. And that's where my hope is from. If you've learned something new by listening to this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and friends. Let's continue this movement and create more joy at work. We'll be back in 2021 with more conversations and new ideas. And we'd love to hear about how you're finding hope and joy through your work community. Share on social media with the hashtag joy at work. If you have guest suggestions or ideas for our next season, we'd love to hear about them. Email us at joy at carney.com. Joy at work is produced by Carney, a global management consulting firm. We help our clients reach their full potential and find the way forward, even during uncertain times. Learn more at carney.com slash joy at work.